The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co., established 1977, have personal and domestic water filters, which turns your ordinary tap water into great tasting, alkaline, ionized mineral water, which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals and bacteria, so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Waters Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Dr. Gabriel Lyon is a functional medicine physician specializing in the concept of muscle-centric medicine, which focuses on the largest organ in the body, skeletal muscle, as the key to health and longevity. Her individualized wellness plans include interventions using high-quality protein diets, supplements, and resistance training to improve health, reduce chronic disease risk, and boost overall energy and wellness by focusing on building and maintaining healthy body composition and lean muscle. Dr. Lyon sees patients in New York City and resides in NYC with her husband, who recently transitioned out of the Navy SEAL teams, and their daughter. To find out more about Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, please visit her website, drgabriellelyon.com. That's D-R-G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. L-Y-O-N dot com. Gabrielle, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. How are you, sister? I'm doing great. I love that it's actually Thursday there. I love that you're a day ahead. I know. It's a little bit strange, isn't it? And most of my guests, for some reason, do come from the United States. So it's always, I'm really tapped into uh, your time zone, whether it's uh, the West Coast or the East Coast or somewhere in the middle. <laughs> so uh, where are you today? New York. Oh, fantastic. New York City, yeah. And how are you traveling over there at the moment? Everything is good, you know. We're in quarantine mode, but it's so nice with my husband and baby. It's great. Mm, fantastic. And I think that's the key, isn't it? It's our mindset to be able to deal with the unknown. And I'd love to start off by talking to you about that. I mean, you're a renowned doctor and we're going to talk about what you were renowned for, but mindset obviously comes into play from what I understand about you too. So what's sort of your recipe for maintaining, I guess, balance in a very uncertain world, what are the go-tos for you? I love this question. You know, it's really interesting. I'm very fortunate to be married to a Navy SEAL and they are 
the highest caliber in mental toughness and really excelling when things go a bit haywire. You know, and I would say that the way in which our family runs on the home front is very structured. It's structured in a mental capacity in terms of what we allow ourselves to think about, how long we allow ourselves to think certain thoughts. And with that mental structure, there's a physical structure. In times of chaos, it's very particular about when we get up, what we do for the first hour of the day, how we bookend our day, and really how we go through each hour. I would love for you to expand on that a little bit because who knows when somebody is going to listen to this. And at the moment, we are in a lockdown period. But even if somebody's listening to this five years down the track and we're not, let's talk about that, about the structure. Because it's interesting because I used to be extremely structured being a chef. I was so organized because for 20 odd years of my profession, I had to be. It was, there was no other way to be other than a to-do list, working very, very fast to achieve a goal. And what I found very fascinating over the last sort of 10 years as I've stepped out of that commercial kitchen role is I have wanted to actively reprogram some of that because I didn't want to do the rest of my life under that time schedule. And it's fascinating because my wife, Nicola, she's sort of the opposite. She's one of these Mm. free-spirited women or free-spirited human beings on the planet where time doesn't really matter that much to her. (laughs) And obviously I've chosen this relationship and she's chosen it to help sort of show some the polarity between us or the duality possibly is might even be the right word because you must have clients that are super rigid and then you must have ones that are sort of so free spirited so how do you navigate depending on your clients i guess where they're at in their life and do you look for more freedom and encourage more freedom as someone that's a little bit more structured? And do you encourage a little bit more structure for somebody that is a little bit too free-willed or maybe not too free-willed, but just free-willed in general? That's a really interesting question. Understanding who the individual is sitting in front of you is arguably the most important fundamental knowledge to be able to get success out of that person. What do I mean by that? by leveraging who the individual is, really understanding what their strengths are, probably more important, understanding their weaknesses will allow you to get the best out of them. For example, if an individual is very free-spirited, there are aspects to that which are incredibly valuable. However, You know, in clinical practice, what I have found is that free spirit, as it relates to health and wellness, can lead to more fluidity and flexibility, subsequently perhaps going off on a diet or a nutrition plan or not exercising or training the way that perhaps may suit them as they age. So really understanding who the person is, is absolutely essential. And really for that person to understand, you know, there's four types of people, and this is some of Gretchen Rubin's work. And I have found that these four types of people really exist and they exist in a medical practice or an optimization practice, which is what I have. And 
I'm going to just briefly touch on those four types of individuals and how that relates to clinical practice in terms of defining what is best for an individual. So initially, there is a rebel, and those are the people that are going to do whatever they want. That is the ultimate free spirit. They are not interested in optimizing their testosterone or optimizing their hormones. Whatever is, is whatever is going to be. So those individuals are incredibly hard to collaborate with. Then there is a questioner. And the questioner, which, by the way, my husband is a questioner. Mm, I think I'd be a questioner too. (laughs) Is they will do whatever is asked of them if they absolutely understand why they are doing it, how it is relevant to them, what the implications are, and what the results are going to be. The questioners are really, they keep you on your toes. They're very, very curious and they want to see the data. Then there are the obligers. And these are the, one of the easier patients and and really one of the easier patients to leverage in terms of getting the best out of themselves. And that is, they are not quite willing to do it for themselves but they're willing to do it for me. They're willing to do it for me because they don't want to let me down. And they will really uphold their end of the bargain. On the flip side of that, it's externally motivated. So if someone is not watching over them, then they perhaps go off track. And these are the people that you know, you really connect with and you check in with them and they require that. And they do really good with consequences. They do very well with consequences. They do very well with accountability. Accountability is the big thing here. And then the final group, they are the upholders. And this group is my easiest patient group. And really this is, I see this with elite military and I see this with CEOs, really high performers. You tell them what they need to do. They don't question it. They're going to uphold it. They're going to execute it because it matters to them. So, you know, you ask the question, how do you deal with the different personalities? The first step is understanding what personality you're dealing with. The second step to that is really being able to leverage not their strengths as much as really understanding their weaknesses, leveraging those weaknesses so that they become their strength. Mm, I love it. Is there a more of a majority that come and see you of one type or is it a mixture? (laughs) You know, it's a mixture. I would say that, you know, at the tip of the sphere, there is the military, the special operations, the CEOs and the athletes and those guys really want, they're looking for a whole nother level of play. They are looking for excellence and they are looking for personal excellence. And I say, here you go. We're going to try this and they just execute. And, you know, in the big scope of the population, those individuals are few and far between. And I would say that while my practice really attracts a lot of those individuals, those are really at the tip of the spear. And then the majority are either questioners and they want to know everything, although I wouldn't say that that's a mass percent. And then the other ones are the upholders. And I would say my best patients are the upholders and really what's called the obliger is needing check-in and really needing accountability. 
But I will tell you overall, every single one of my patients is highly motivated. It's not a match if they're not. They're extremely motivated. They're extremely dedicated and they want to hold themselves to a higher standard because really what medicine is all about is it's removing physical obstacles. It truly is taking away physical obstacles so individuals can function to their highest capacity. Whatever their vessel of capacity is, that's ultimately what good medicine is. I've heard the saying before many times and that one of the greatest fears human beings have is of their own potential. How often do you see that in your practice? I don't. I don't feel that the individuals that come to see me, that they are afraid of their own potential. I would say that their biggest fear is regret. They are afraid of having regrets of not putting it all on the table, of not operating at their highest capacity, but not fear of their brightness or their power, but fear that they wouldn't utilize all that they have to offer. Mm. I had a fellow on the podcast last year called Shervin. And he was talking about that. He's all in, baby. He's all in. Uh -uh. (laughs) I love it. And to get that all in, I mean, one of the questions you ask your patients and clients is, why are you doing this? And what Mm -hmm. is your why? Why is that so important? Motivation ebbs and flows, but discipline and dedication to a higher purpose does not. And really, once that's anchored in, it becomes very easy to continue the journey of physical excellence and removing physical obstacles. You know, I can share my experience of dealing with the most elite warriors of our time. They have certain personality traits and they have certain traits that I see over and over again. And one of these traits is their ability to move off the X. And let me tell you a little story about what that looks like. I had a patient who came into my office and he had been in the teams for 20 years, which is a pretty long time in the SEAL teams, multiple deployments. This guy, just to paint a picture for you, 260 pound breacher. He's kind of what they would call the knuckle dragger, right? Mm -hmm. Big dude. He's the first guy in, you know, he blows stuff up. He blows it up, he opens the door, he carries heavy load. And he had just come back from a recent deployment and was on his motorcycle. He was going five miles an hour and he was struck by a 17-year-old girl texting and driving. And he lost his leg. Hmm. Lost his leg, 20 Hmm. years in the teams, never injured in combat, home on friendly soil, on his motorcycle, driving five miles an hour, totally taken out by a 17-year-old girl texting and driving. He loses his leg. And sitting in my office, and this was six months after the injury, and I go, you know, I'm a five foot one, 
125 pound female married to a seal. No one's going to punch me in the face. (laughs) So I, I have this ability to really ask these guys questions that perhaps maybe another physician wouldn't you know, being married to a seal, there's a a certain perspective of just knowing them and being in the community, you know, sitting in my office and I'm like, Brian, how are you doing? And what I was expecting was, oh man, doc, you know, this, this, and this. But what he said to me was, well, you know, I've been kind of tired and my legs hurting and you know, just the usual. And I said, no, 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 Brian. I mean, how are you feeling? And he looks up at me, totally bewildered, legitimately. And he's like, Doc, what are you talking about? And I said, Brian, here you are, this big, you know, and I go into what a big study is and how he lost his leg. And he looks at me and he goes, Doc, that was six months ago. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, most of us are still thinking about what happened two years ago. Hmm. This guy loses his leg on friendly soil. And in six months, he's moved off what they call the proverbial X. And I can't tell you. And then, by the way, you know, I go home and I said, oh, hey, Shane, you know, Brian was in the office and they're friends. And he's like, yeah, 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 I know. And, you know, there's a patient confidentiality. So luckily they're friends. And I said, you know, I can't believe how Brian's doing. And Shane's like, well, what do you mean? I said, well, he lost his leg six months ago. And Shane looks at me and he goes, babe that was six months ago. What are you talking about? (laughs) Hmm. That, I mean, and this was a true and genuine reaction. And I will tell you, for those individuals that really move to the highest level of their being, they have this capacity to experience an event or a trauma or a sickness or a crucible event. And they move off of it. They move off that pain spot swiftly. So that, you know, that is just something that I have seen over and over again. Mm. When you do have a patient and they're coming to see you and you do ask that question, why are you here? Why, why, why? When you boil it all down, why is someone sitting in front of you? What do they want from you or what do they want out of that situation? And not even to go down to metaphysical, but why do you think people present themselves or create illness in themselves? I would say they all want to feel better. They all believe that there's a capacity to feel better than they feel right now, whether it's fatigue or thyroid imbalance or autoimmune disease or digestive issues. There is a fundamental belief that they can feel better. And, you know, the average number of physicians my patients have been to before they get to me is 13. They've been to 13 other physicians before they land in my office, whether, again, whether it's hormonal related or thyroid or autoimmunity, digestion, weight loss, 
A ton of my patients have tried everything to lose weight. They all believe that they can be feeling better. And in your experience over the years, has your solution-based diagnosis and I guess what you prescribe to your patients, has it become simpler or more complicated over the years? I actually love that question. It has become much more streamlined. You know, I've been practicing medicine for about a decade. And initially, I would say things in the beginning are much more complex. But the more experience you have, the more you look for silver bullets. You look for simplified protocols, advanced testing, advanced solutions. In my practice, I like to get results quickly. I like to take people out of pain or whatever their pain point is, as rapidly as possible. And one of the tools that I use, I definitely use medications. I use peptides. I use hormones. And then I augment them with more alternative practices. So whether it's herbals or supplements, it's really a combination of the two and it's very targeted. You've got to put the fundamentals in place. Talk to me about those fundamentals because from my perspective, and this keeps coming up more and more for me, I created a film a few years ago called The Magic Pill, which aired on Netflix for a few years and it's out there. And we showed the power of food as one of the tools only one of the tools. And we're about to release a film very soon on cannabis as Mm, one of the other tools. And there's so many tools we can use for health. And for some people, this is my perception, is some might need to look at their diet as 60% or 70% of, of what they need to look at. And maybe meditation or spiritual growth or understanding could be another 20%. For somebody else, it could be reverse of that. And for somebody else, it could be whatever connection to nature or movement or understanding how their body works and removing emotional negative belief patterns for somebody could be the first catalyst for them to actually then go on this journey. And I'm a big believer in modern medicine, but I'm also a big believer in ancient wisdom and also, I guess, spirituality. So as a clinician, as a doctor, How do you dictate, because I had a very, very dear friend years ago who was a holistic dentist, but he was so unique. He's passed away, unfortunately, but he was so unique because he looked at the person that came in to see him and he was open to, he would refer them to maybe a hundred of his different colleagues from anything from crystal healing to proper specialist in the medical field and everything in between. So he encompassed everything and he used his intuition to a degree in muscle testing to navigate where somebody might need to go first. So, and I'm asking you after all these years in practice, how much intuition comes into you working out what the steps are for your clients? Intuition plays a massive role in the art of medicine. And that's really what separates a scientist from a healer. And I would say the best physicians are both scientists and healers. And intuition plays a huge part 
in being able to identify and really connect and know what the next steps for that person is. Even more valuable is the capacity to look at the trajectory of the person, knowing where the end result needs to be, and then those first few steps to get them there. In my medical practice, one of the core fundamentals is nutrition. I actually trained in nutritional sciences for seven years, and two of those years were at WashU, which is a pretty great institution. You know, and getting those core fundamental nutritional principles correct, which is really feeding muscle, which is the organ of longevity. Interestingly, muscle is a endocrine organ, which is secretory in nature. And when you contract it, it secretes substances called myokines, which go throughout the body and work in a number of ways. And really, as it relates to inflammation, aging, all these metabolic processes, the number one thing people can do is optimize that muscle tissue. So to do that, nutrition is absolutely key, really nutrition and resistance exercise. So when a person comes into the office, the first thing I do, well, maybe not the first thing, the first thing I do is really get to know them. And inevitably in that conversation is their nutrition. That's the, the cornerstone that needs to be addressed. And in my practice, it is really about optimizing protein, really limiting excess carbohydrates, excess calories, excess fat, and whole food-based, hearty, nutrient-dense proteins. How did you discover this? Because you seem to be one of the only doctors out there that I'm aware of that really focuses on the muscular system, if that's the correct terminology, yeah. and the underlying power <laughs> and yeah. uh, the foundation of that. And this is why I really wanted to speak to you. And I'm so glad that we got to hear through those other channels instead of starting this way, because I felt like I wanted to hear the emotional and spiritual and intuitive side of the work that you do. And then we can get into the science now of why this isn't more widely known and why do you believe this is the foundational key for long-term sustainable health through proper use of protein because yeah. everywhere I turn in mainstream media, the message is limit that and, and right. who knows what's going to go on with this potential food chain breakdown that potentially could be happening now around the world. And my wife and I, we have a farm and we actually just raised two pigs and cooked some of it last night actually for my daughters and for my mum. And this last week, my wife and I have been speaking. She's on the farm and I'm here in Sydney away from her. And we're like, we need to get cows and we need to get them now yeah. <laughs> on the farm. So take us through your discovery of the muscular system and take us on the journey, please. Yeah, my pleasure. And I so appreciate you letting me share initially the more spiritual aspect of medicine because it's not something that people ask me about. And it truly is a very important part of my practice. And anyone that knows me very well will know that it is paramount in my relationship with the patients. This concept that muscle is the organ of longevity and really is necessary for everything that 
relates to health was born really in two parts. And the first part was in my undergraduate experience. And before I even tell you about that, I'm going to tell you that my godmother, her name is Liz Lipsky, and she's one of the OGs of functional medicine. I graduated high school early, and I moved in with her when I was 17. And I started to see her nutrition practice change people's lives. And I moved in with her when I was 17 on Kauai. So it was a very organic, <laughs> to say the least, experience. And at 17, I knew that nutrition was a huge part of what I was going to be doing. Then I went to University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana. And at that time, I so luckily, I was so lucky to have found a mentor. And that mentor, who is still my mentor 20 years later, his name is Dr. Donald Lehman. And I studied human nutrition, vitamin, mineral metabolism underneath him at the University of Illinois. Well, it turns out that Dr. Lehman is one of the world-leading experts in protein metabolism. And from a very young age, right in college, it became clear to me that this was a key component. You know, here I am learning from just one of the world's finest. And at that time, I started training and competing in dance and gymnastics, and it was really all about optimizing body composition. So I know I'm telling you kind of a long story. The first part of this story is really about selfishly a vanity side and really wanting to optimize my own performance and being taught by some of the world's finest, which is a privilege, truly is a privilege. I mean, this is an academic individual who has produced, you know, hundreds and hundreds of papers and speaks and just really a world-class, world-class researcher. So I understood at that point that protein was absolutely essential. And I started working on research very early in my career. And then, of course, I went off to medical school and I did two years of residency in psychiatry at University of Louisville and then three years of family medicine at North Shore LIJ. And throughout that period, medicine was really not something I loved. In fact, I despised Western medicine. But I knew that it was so important for me to get the fundamental education. But all the while, I saw that this was a broken system and that obesity rates continued to increase, that we were constantly chasing body fat. And I was seeing doctors prescribing their patients the same medications that they were taking. And that nutrition and training was so not part of the conversation. Nearly everyone that was sick had one thing in common. They had poor body composition. They were not over fat. Arguably, they were all, you know, they all had excess body fat. Strikingly, they were all under-muscled. I began to realize from the framework of protein metabolism and body composition that we were looking at it all wrong. And 
truly this moment set in after my five years of medical training of residency, I then did a fellowship and I did a fellowship at WashU in Sam Klein's lab, who again is one of the finest researchers. I mean, it's one of the finest labs in the country in nutrition, but the deal was I was going to be able to study advanced nutrition, but I had to do clinical work in geriatrics. So I did obesity medicine and geriatrics. And I will never forget one of the studies that I worked on. I was in charge of the cognitive aspect of one of the studies with human subjects. And part of it was imaging people's brains. And we were looking at middle-aged women and brain volume as it relates to obesity. And this was a turning point for me. We were scanning this woman's brain and she had obvious signs of what would become later life dementia. And it was heartbreaking. And it was all based on body composition because dementia and Alzheimer's and mild cognitive impairment, these are all obesity related diseases for the most part. You know, there's genetic components, but it's type three diabetes of the brain, you know, and we're looking at our brain scan and going, gosh, she has no idea what she was in store for. And this was obesity research. And it was really understanding that because there was all these emotions tied with food and eating to soothe herself and never putting herself first and making time for herself to train and weightlift and really get her body composition under control, she had degenerative brain changes. And it was at that moment that it all clicked that muscle is the organ of longevity and that we are not over fat, we are under muscled. And if we do not get this tissue correct, the trajectory of aging is going to be devastating, predictable and devastating. And that's where this concept of muscle-centric medicine was born. You know, and really to even add to that, you know, I have worked in a nursing home for two years through this fellowship. And just seeing people at the end of their life and seeing and speaking to them and their family members about these midlife choices and seeing the later life effects was just, you know, it's devastating, devastating to the families and just heartbreaking. And I knew that if I could get this message out there, that muscle is the organ of longevity and that you have to do everything in your power to augment and maintain this tissue and that all this talk about protein being bad for you and you know everyone should go all plant-based is the single worst piece of advice that anybody could get. And I have sat at the bedside of individuals who are dying. They've broken a hip. They're not going to survive. They're in the hospital. They're bedridden. They don't have enough muscle mass and strength to be able to come back from a fall or pneumonia, and that their choices midlife, 30s, 40s, 50s, where you know 
whatever they were doing, they weren't taking care of this organ of longevity. They're going to pay. And what was so heartbreaking is the misinformation, you know, inability to educate and the propaganda that pushes back and controls these people's lives. It, I just felt that it was so unfair and so wrong. I had to do something. And that's really where it came from. My family and I have been using beautiful, high-quality essential oils for the last 20 years to live healthily every single day. Now, if you're passionate about health and are ready to step into leadership, I want to invite you to partner with my team and I to build a beautifully successful doTERRA business. Register at PeteHLC.com backslash Pete. That's Pete HLC, which stands for the Healthy Living Collective, dot com backslash Pete. Mm, what a great story. So let's get into the nitty gritty. Okay. Talk to us about muscles. And, and <laughs> when people think about muscles, I don't know. You, hey, they you, think about but, locomotion. It's, <laughs> they think about looking good in a bikini. It is so much more than that. Yes. Yeah, so, so take us through it. Yeah, yeah. So muscle, while, you know, it, it is this tissue for locomotion, which is what everyone thinks about it. That's just one aspect. It is actually your metabolic currency. So everything as it relates to body composition is related to muscle. Muscle is really one of the largest determinants of your resting metabolic rate, which is the energy that you burn at rest. You know, and you hear about it, the people that have a high, quote, high metabolism, it's really related to muscle tissue. So number one, it's your metabolic currency. It's responsible for a large part of your resting metabolic rate. It's also one of the largest sites for glucose disposal. People talk about diabetes, blood sugar regulation. Muscle tissue is one of the largest sites to utilize glucose, which is invaluable. It is also one of the largest sites for fatty acid oxidation. When people talk about cholesterol, fatty acid oxidation happens in muscle tissue. So from a metabolic standpoint, muscle is king. But when you talk about muscle, just define that for us. So it's biceps, triceps, organs. Talk so to no, us. so skeletal muscle, that's a good differentiation. There's skeletal muscle and there's smooth muscle. What I'm talking about really is the skeletal muscle aspect. It's the muscle that you see. Yes, it's biceps, quadriceps, glutes. It's the big muscles that you see. And that's really what I mean by muscle as the organ of longevity. It's really the skeletal muscle that mm -hmm. I'm talking about as it relates to not just locomotion, but truly as it relates to metabolism, as it relates to mitochondria, which is obviously everybody talks about mitochondria as the powerhouse of the cell. Well, muscle tissue declines naturally as you age. There's mm -hmm. something that happens, it's called anabolic resistance. And it's really the inability for the tissue to sense the stimulus, the signal to make it grow, to turn it over, to keep it healthy. And that signal comes from amino acids. And one amino acid in particular, leucine, is really the trigger for the stimulus of muscle. And that's why dietary protein is so important because muscle tissue, especially aging muscle tissue or obese muscle tissue, requires a very robust dose of protein. Mm. Can I ask you a question? I know you're on a thing here, but I was actually having a discussion with my mother yesterday. She's 
nearly 80 years of age, and she said she's just lost two kilos in the last few months, and perhaps it's to do with the stress and of what's happening here in the world. And I gently suggested to her that maybe you need to increase your meat and seafood and eggs at the moment, and maybe even just lower your vegetables just down a little bit more. And would that be... it's tricky when you speak to your parents because you don't want to take them down the wrong path. And I, I don't think you can go wrong here because what I've heard is the older you get, the more protein nearly that you need to be eating and the less vegetables you need Correct. to be eating. That's absolutely right. And there's a really good study called the Protage Study. And you know, for all your listeners, it's evidence-based and it really talks about the increasing need for protein based on these amino acids. You gave your mother great advice. And in fact, arguably that's advice that everybody should be taking, especially even in their fifties, you start that early. And the reason you start that is because when you age, you know, and if your mom is not moving enough or lifting weights right now, she has to maintain the tissue and the tissue naturally declines with age. It's called sarcopenia, which is a decrease in muscle strength and function. There's a lot of reasons as to why that happens. And actually, while sarcopenia is thought to be a disease of aging, it really starts midlife. It really has that potential to start midlife because, you know, we are largely domesticated. But as a take-home for your mom, it would be really great for her to get around 40 to 50 grams of protein per meal. And that is going to be a lot for her. When I say 40 to 50 grams, I mean you know, around six ounces of protein, which a lot of people in their 80s aren't going to eat. So what do you do? Mm. You add in branched chain amino acids. So if you tell her to increase her meat consumption, which I think is incredibly valuable, my next recommendation would be to add in a scoop of branched chain amino acids. That's BCAAs. BCAAs and Mm -hmm. five grams of creatine throughout, Mm -hmm. you know, give five grams of creatine for the day, branch chain amino acids, every meal, three meals a day. And you will see that her muscle mass should begin to come back. You really want to protect it. If it doesn't come back, you at least will protect it. Wow. Thank you so much for that. I've got a question and I know we're right in the midst of this, but while it's here, why is it that some days I eat certain foods and a few hours later, my body, my muscles feel like they've switched on even though I haven't done anything different. Like, and it's usually organ meats that do that to me or when I'm not actually eating as many vegetables, all of a sudden I can feel it. Like my body actually gets, it might sound strange, but I feel stronger and bigger and I haven't done anything different except maybe eaten a bit more meat that day or focused on organ meats. Why does this happen? Or am I just imagining this? I love that that actually happens to you. You know, these are, you're talking about very nutrient dense foods, high amounts of B12, zinc, selenium, you know, and then organ meats are rich in iron. You know, you're getting a bolus dose of amino acids. And these amino acids do so much more than just stimulate muscle protein synthesis. But what you're doing is you are hitting a threshold where it's about, two and a half grams of leucine begins to trigger muscle protein synthesis. And 
what you're likely doing is you're getting a very robust response. You're getting a flood of amino acids into your bloodstream with high quality nutrients. You're getting creatine and, you know, carnitine. You're, you're getting all of these nutrients and you're getting all your essential amino acids. And this is what your body needs. You're getting, for example, you're getting arginine, which helps with vasodilation, which helps with blood flow and blood pressure. You know, that's just an example. Amino acids, which help with master antioxidants like glutathione. Mm. You're talking about highly bioavailable nutrients. Another question then, because I've heard that too much protein is, I mean, this is from people that I've had on the podcast as well, that if you eat too much protein, that can be anti-aging when I don't really take too much notice of that word, right. anti-aging. But that's sort of, you've got to be careful with how much protein that you eat because too much can be detrimental. So is that bullshit? Because I've read Michael Eads' work and Protein Power and some of the carnivore doctors as well, what they talk about and enthusiasts. And where do we navigate this? Is it common sense? <laughs> this is a really important discussion and one that I've had with my mentor many, many times. And the question becomes, what dose is too much? So if we know that the RDA is 0.8 grams per kilogram, which is the bare minimum to prevent disease, at what dose is actually too much? You have vegan and vegetarians that recommend 0.3 grams per kilogram. And we know that that's really like a disease zone if that's not even enough for maintenance. There has never been a study, there's never been any evidence to support that high quality protein is detrimental, ever. And it's a lot of propaganda. In fact, we know that optimal protein nutrition helps with body composition, it helps with glucose metabolism, blood sugar regulation, fatty acid oxidation, muscle mass. It's, I've never seen a study that would indicate protein being bad for us. And that's just, I mean, this is regardless of people's opinions, protein is very emotional for people. And because it's so emotional, they really try to discredit it. But the reality is humans have been eating animal-based products for two and a half million years. Correct me if I'm wrong here, because another thing that I've heard and from people that I would call reputable, that there's no mention in any medical textbook to say that carbohydrates are essential for human beings. That's true. Explain that, because I've mentioned that before and I've had dietitians say, you're dangerous, that is completely untrue. No. So there's an obligatory carbohydrate need, and that's through red blood cells, brain, and certain organs. And that obligatory need is around, you could say safely, 80 to 90 grams of carbohydrates, of glucose that's needed. Now, that being said, that's obligatory carbohydrate need. Now, for every 100 grams of dietary protein you eat, your body generates 60 grams of glucose through a process called gluconeogenesis. So you actually don't ever have to eat carbohydrates to generate glucose. The body has its capacity to metabolize it 
itself. So there is no essential recommendation, but the recommendation comes from the obligatory need. And then the way that they do is they put two standard deviations. So for example, the RDA is 130 grams of carbohydrates. However, the body can generate that. The body can generate all the carbohydrates it needs. The only thing that is essential are amino acids, and then there are essential fatty acids, and you need about three and a half grams of fatty acids. So, so in my recommendation, mm-hmm. anchoring your plate in protein first, really being protein-centric is the key to longevity because it protects your muscle, it allows you to optimize body composition, it allows you to control for calories. If you wanna have carbohydrates, fine, but it really needs to be limited to 50 grams or less a meal because there's a meal threshold. Carbohydrates should be thought of as an, a meal threshold phenomenon because of insulin, right? You don't want too robust of an insulin response. So jumping around here, but do then do people go into ketosis and is that a desired space to be? Because what, I mean, I've written a few books about ketosis and I personally go in and out of ketosis and I don't really count any carbs or do anything like that. My meals look like a nice piece of meat or seafood or eggs with some plant foods around them and herbs and spices. And that's sort of pretty much how I eat every day. Sometimes there'll be a little bit more sweet potato. Other days it might not be any plant material on my plate. So is there a formula? Do you recommend that people eat intuitively or is there a stepping stone for you with your patients depending on what they present? And how do you eat? <laughs> so, uh, you know, you and I eat very similarly. You know, I am very protein heavy and it just, it really works well. And, and that's how my patients are. In terms of ketogenic diet, I don't do that. And I don't put my patients on that. We really are protein centric. And then I determine their carbohydrate need based on the amount of activity and really where they are. So if they are eating some kind of carbohydrate or feel like they need it, you know, for me, it's going to be mostly greens, green vegetables. My patients are going to be mostly plants if that's what they're going to be eating. You know, protein will kick an individual out of a ketogenic diet because of its ability to go through gluconeogenesis, Mm -hmm. depending on how much your protein load is. However, people like you, you know, there are guys that just really can go in and out and do very well. And I absolutely applaud you for finding out what works for you. I mean, that's incredible. A lot of people struggle for a long time to really figure out that sweet spot. Mm, I'm just thinking about the pork fat that I was eating last night and the crackling. (laughs) So it was so yummy. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. Wow. So let's talk about, I want to talk about movement for our bodies and for our muscles. So we're going to eat enough protein, which you're saying we can't really overeat. So include beautiful protein from healthy animals, no doubt. Yep. yep. And then what happens in the movement space? Because a couple of months ago, I had an ex-world champion bodybuilder over to my house. And oh, well, actually, oh, two so of fun. them, actually. They were, you know, I usually don't feel too insecure around people, but I was like, whoa. <laughs> and they weren't even at their competing weight. They'd retired. But looking at somebody like that, 
is that the optimal to get our bodies to produce muscle on a large scale or is there an optimal range where too much it might be too bad and not enough isn't enough we don't actually know you mean in terms of exercise or in terms of muscle tissue well both i would say uh-huh. it's interesting we don't actually know and this is what's so shocking to me is that we have charts for percent body fat and we know what's bad but we actually don't have any great charts for percent muscle mass. And that's fascinating. So we don't, I couldn't tell you what your ideal muscle mass should be. And I couldn't tell my husband or I can't tell myself. We don't know. As it relates to muscle, I would arguably say the more the better. Obviously, if you're augmenting with anabolics, there's a capacity that pushes the limits and the tendons and the tissue to a whole different level. As it relates to exercise, the majority of us don't do enough. Resistance training is absolutely essential. And whether that's heavy load, you know, there's some research from McMaster University from Stu Phillips' lab that really would indicate that you don't have to lift heavy as long as you're going to perceived exertion. Having well-designed programs, and people do this full-time. You know, I don't design programs, but I always find the finest trainers and the coaches who design incredible programs for people and having a program that is consistent and challenges you truly and that involves heavy resistance training and of course high intensity interval training depending on the individual's goal as it relates to longevity is phenomenal when we are doing these exercises and i mean let's put it in perspective here say my mum again who's 80 She's in lockdown at the moment. She's doing her walks around the neighborhood, which is fantastic. Yeah. What can somebody at that age or any age start to do to be in the optimal state if there is such a thing? And what would you recommend for her to do? Any type of exercise? She should be doing resistance exercise. And even if that means sitting to standing while holding something, you know, light, she should be practicing getting up from her chair sit to stand to sit to stand. Also, she should be working on her balance. And really, even if she just has water bottles, she should be doing the best she can. And I would say she should try something every day to begin to utilize these muscles, even if it's bicep curls, bicep curls, body weight squats, squats holding, you know, maybe a book or a can, you know, she has to be careful not to fall. But You know, my dad's 70 and he does push-ups every day. And it concerns me based on the current situation. And that's when we're all in lockdown and really only able to walk. The biggest concern I have is the elderly because they need to have community and they also need to be moving and not just walking, but doing some kind of strength training. Because there's, you know, if you look at the research out of Doug Patton Jones's lab, inactivity the trajectory muscle mass from inactivity is striking. It's profound at how fast you lose it. How does sunlight come into play in regards to our muscles? Because I know personally, I feel fantastic if I do exercise Mm -hmm. outside as opposed to indoors. Now, is that just psychological (laughs) belief or I mean vitamin D is incredible. There are vitamin D receptors on the muscle. When I was in the when I ran a geriatric clinic at WashU, we always checked vitamin D 
anyone because low vitamin D puts them at a fall risk. As it relates to training outside, I would say everybody feels better training outside. Sun, fresh air, you know, that's kind of our natural habitat. Mm, I, I was just wondering whether there's an, some sort of activation between the sun and our muscles, whether there's any scientific evidence that they help each other. I don't other. know. I think it's a great question. That's interesting. Mm. Yeah, I'd have to look at that. But the one thing I would say is certainly vitamin D. I love it. Next question. You mentioned BCAA, branched chain amino acids, and also creatine before. Now, how is that a natural supplement and is it? And how do you justify putting something like that into our bodies? Explain to me how that works because I've heard mixed things about this over the years. So, and The evidence is pretty good as it relates to branched chain amino acids and understanding what purpose they play. And the expert is Robert Wolf, and he's out of Galveston, Texas, now I think at the University of Arkansas. And he's really the expert as it relates to branched chain amino acids. And he's written some incredible research on this and just has produced incredible work. And branched chain amino acids by themselves don't do much. As it relates to muscle protein synthesis, if you don't eat anything and you have branched chain amino acids, you begin to stimulate this process, this mTOR process. It's kind of like turning on the car and having no gas. So you don't actually want to stimulate this mTOR process without having a full spectrum of amino acids. And there's 20, nine being essential, and then the three branch chains, which are leucine, isoleucine, and valine. That's what makes up a branch chain amino acid powder. Now, where branched-chain amino acids are absolutely beneficial, really in two ways. Number one, if you are looking for calorie control and you want to, you know, maybe I should say three ways. So calorie control, if you have two ounces of fish, which two ounces of fish is not enough amino acids to stimulate muscle protein synthesis and you know, provide enough amino acids for numerous other things in the body. But if your diet caloric restriction accounts for two ounces of fish, then by adding in a branch chain amino acid, you now move the amino acids up so the body actually would, you know, see that it's getting 30 grams of protein, but really you're only getting 14. So you get the caloric load of two ounces versus four ounces. And that's one way to use branched chain amino acids because you really do want to have enough amino acids if you're going to eat to stimulate mTOR, but also the essential amino acids and the full spectrum of amino acids, all 20, to be able to lay down muscle tissue. So that's one way of utilizing branched chains. Another way of utilizing branched chains would be your mom. So your mom's in her 80s. She is probably pretty consistent in whatever nutrition plan she's eating. And if she's old school, she might be having toast for breakfast and maybe one egg and some tea. No, she's on the sort of the paleo approach. So she's making Okay. Broths so, and... you know, she has, right. So she has you and she's probably not the norm. You know, Correct. I can tell you from my clinical practice and, and spending two years taking care of a very high volume of geriatric patients. That's not the norm. But what can be of benefit is 
for individuals that are not consuming a lot, I can't imagine your mom has a massive appetite. And, you know, like my dad doesn't. By adding in a scoop of branched chain amino acids for an aging individual is absolutely helpful in having them protect their muscle. At the very least, stop a catabolic process. So if she's inflamed or has stress, adding in a branched chain amino acid, which is really just that free form amino acid, would be so beneficial with no downside that um, that would be a second way of utilizing branched chain amino acids. The third way is if you are vegan or vegetarian and having something like a lower quality protein, whether it's soy or quinoa or hemp, which are all lower in the branched chain amino acids and require more. So for example, it would take six cups of quinoa to equal one small chicken breast. If you add in a branched chain amino acid with the quinoa, you now raise the quality of that protein. I mean, you can never change the quality of the quinoa protein, but you can change the quality at that meal by augmenting it. And that would be the third way to utilize branched chain amino acids. Mm, I love it. I'm learning so much today. I'm going to ask you a question. And I feel like I already know the answer, but uh, how does fasting come into play? Like this week, I actually did a 48 hour fast and I don't do them very often. I'm usually don't eat till lunchtime because I never really feel like it, but that changes depending if we've got the kids for breakfast and I'll have breakfast for the kids. Mm -hmm. And, but where does fasting come into play and how often should we be eating and should we ever have a break? <laughs> well, let's look at this in terms of age. When you're young, fasting is no issue. And when I say young, 20s, 30s, 40s, I think that there's a lot of flexibility. And truly, eating in an eight to nine hour window is great. Most of my patients use time-restricted feeding. Individuals that were really looking to push weight loss, there's alternate day fasting. I have some patients that do one 20-hour fast a week. And all of these really help with lowering body fat. It allows for calorie restriction. You know, in terms of muscle, as long as they're active, you typically don't lose that much tissue. And the only way to really determine if you are someone that does is you have to measure the skeletal muscle mass. There are a lot of benefits to fasting. And I would say, arguably, number one is truly calorie control. And two, you can retrain your circadian feeding, which is very helpful. Anyone that has gut inflammation or low levels of chronic inflammation, fasting is definitely a tool. But now let's talk about something that we don't hear very often. When an individual is aging or they have anabolic resistance or they are in a highly catabolic state that is, you know, whatever that is, fasting is not ideal. If you're, I would never recommend that your mom fast. That muscle tissue is much too valuable to lose. If you are over the age of 50 and you are not training and you are fasting, I don't recommend it. Of course, it's individual dependent, but certainly as an individual ages, fasting is not ideal. 
Hmm. I love it. I'm in my forties. So <laughs> well, I'm nearing fifties. So I've got a couple more years. <laughs> but if you think about it, if you maintain your physical activity, that is your chronological age. Biologically, you're likely much younger. Mm-hmm. That's what I love. I, I'm mad keen surfer. And it brings a smile to my face when I'm out in the surf and I'm, I see people out there in their 70s and 80s it's incredible. still surfing. And they have this joyful smile on their face. Like, I'm still doing this. <laughs> you know, I still get to give myself this gift of riding Mother Nature, so to speak, or being immersed in nature and having joy at the same time and being connected. And I can't help but, you know, and I don't mean to judge, but there's so many people I would say that no longer enjoy that gift of exercise and play and movement that brought them so much joy in their earlier years. And as they get older, they've just let that go. So what are some of the most remarkable things that you've witnessed with your patients in bringing back that joy and that movement of that play into their lives? You know, it's so interesting. My dad, and you know, obviously my dad's not a patient. Well, arguably maybe he is. He moved to Ecuador and he's 70, a little over 70. And as it relates to play, I think there becomes this pivotal point where people realize, and maybe this is too meta, you know, maybe I'm just going off the deep end and being too philosophical, but there becomes this tipping point where people realize that time on this planet is finite. And I think that the youth perhaps doesn't really recognize that. But when you begin to hit 40s, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, something happens. And I I see that as soon as someone has that shift and realize that there's a, a very finite span left, joy becomes a priority. Mm. So what do you do for joy? What's your recipe there? Spending time with my family. I have a baby girl and an incredible husband. That is my, I, I just can't believe how lucky I am. It is truly the biggest blessing I couldn't have even imagined. I love it. Mm. Me too. <laughs> Me too. Isn't it the most amazing thing? It's so incredible to see, you know. I want to be right. You know, and I. Ego. Ah, it's just, I, I just have never seen anything like it. Truly, when we're all together, you know, it's amazing. And, and I would say, not to be too morbid, but both myself and my husband have seen a lot of death. You know, we both have seen so much death in our careers that to see life is really, truly incredible. Mm. And I guess last question, because it is pertinent to this time, I'm a little bit confused about what's going on in the world. And do you have a take on where we're at right now? And is there light at the end of this tunnel that you can see? Are you talking about our current quarantine situation? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and from a medical standpoint? It's a very good question. You know, I will tell you part of my training in my field is that it's important to know what you know, and it's important to know what you don't know. And because I've been trained by such world-class experts, I really hesitate to offer an opinion because there are people that are virologists and infectious disease physicians that this is what they do. So with that being said, I can only give my humble opinion as a 
non-expert in this particular situation. And I believe that, you know, if you are not in a high transmission area, so I'm in New York, very high transmission, but I believe that there's going to be liberation for the rest of the world, or at least the rest of the U.S. soon. I do believe that that will happen soon. And as a medical professional, are you concerned about this virus for yourself? Like, do you feel protected? And is there such a thing as that? Just No, it's concerning. And, you know, we have the privilege to have very good friends that are here in New York City on the front lines. We have a very good friend who is part of the White House Task Force. He's a military guy. And he is here in New York City at a COVID-only hospital. And he has been intubating and extubating more people within the last couple weeks than he has easily in the last decade in his career. Hmm. So it is a very real threat, at least here in New York City. You know, it's interesting. There's so much propaganda, but I can only tell you and share with you the information that we are being told by our very dear friends that are literally in New York City in the hospitals and they are finding it incredibly busy and incredibly stressful. But again, this is in a very dense populated area and I think that the majority of people that get it are going to be just fine. And there's probably underlying aspects to this that we just don't know yet. But most people that get this, and I've had many patients that have had it, are fine. And that's hopeful. So there are aspects to this that is, you know, certainly nobody wants to get it. But if you get it, the chances are you're going to be just fine. Awesome. Gabrielle, thank you so much for our chat today. I have learned a great deal and I I love this because furthering our knowledge base, I believe is one of the ways to stay young as well, you know, to be curious. I'm going back to that, uh, that archetype that you said talked about before the questioner. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for allowing me to question you on so many different topics today. I just want to tell you that I love you and uh, love to your family as well in this time. And I can't wait to meet you in person one day, whenever that may be. If you come to Australia, we would love to cook you and your family a meal. And if I'm in the States, I'll come and say good day. Thank you so much. It was really great speaking to you. Thank you for letting me share my story. Uh, Pleasure. You have a wonderful day. Love to you all. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed the health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows, and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. 
please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.